And another reminder that Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. It gives you everything you need in one place, and it's free. You can use it right from your phone or your computer. They have creation tools, so you can record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. And they'll distribute your podcast for free. So you can hear it on Spotify, Apple, Google, and many more. Just like us here at BraveMaker. Make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So download the Anchor app today and go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks to our sponsors. Now back to the show. Stories, scripts, and conversations with creators. This is the Brave Maker Podcast. Can you hear okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Crystal clear. So we thought we'd also do a little bit of a, a live video for, for everybody on Facebook. But this is the first time that Rebecca's been back in a while. Yeah, no pressure. Live video, <laughs> ring lights. <laughs> and Welcome of, back. Yeah. And what were you going to say? And, and of course, I didn't get ready this morning because I'm like, oh, we're just going to be in the office. No one's going to see it. It's a podcast. It's radio. <laughs> like, you know. And it's Whatever. so cold. So we're both mm. obviously in our huge parkas. And uh, inside the office, there is air, there is heat, heat happening. Yep. But right outside our hallway door, to go to the bathroom, you have to go outside. And it's so frigid. And it's so cold. So I was joking. Like, when I came back, I'm like, I still want to keep my coat on. But we have to do this video. So it's going to look a little awkward. But that's fine. It's a hard life. It's we a have. hard knock life. <laughs> So big news before we jump into the introduction of episode 40 of the Brave Maker podcast, we have a new Brave Maker. Yeah, I've been busy creating a little human. <laughs> so Rebecca's with child. <laughs> happy, happy Christmas. Yeah. That's why she hasn't been in uh, uh, the intros lately because she's been brave making a baby boy. Yeah. So far, we think it's a baby boy, so that's what we were told. Congratulations. We'll Thank you. First Brave Maker baby, I guess. That's right. First Brave Maker baby. <laughs> so we are trying to get a little onesie with the word Brave Maker on it. So any Etsy people who have any connections with onesie makers, let us know. Because we want to, we maybe we'll do a little line. Maybe we should get more than one for the future Brave Maker babies. Kind of fun. We have a lot of kids at the film festival we and do. stuff, and they we do, do ask for. We do, and my kids have said, "Dad, why do we not have Brave Maker <laughs> T-shirts in our sizes?" I was like, "Because it costs money, but we, we'll work on it." Okay, we're just going into our second year of being Brave Maker, and it's been awesome. We've been learning a lot. We're hustling a lot. We're working a lot. We're experimenting. We're learning what works and what doesn't. And at the end of 2019 here, just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's come to our film screenings, all of you who are subscribed to the podcast and share it with other people and who give, you know, this is a nonprofit 501c3 organization. We just had, actually, can you grab that? I was going to say, where is it? We just had a huge matching (laughs) campaign (laughs) and we raised, you raised $47,325 and we're still trying to hit 50000 by the end of the year because we had a matching grant that's been given to us. So if you can give, you can just even pull out your phone right now. Text the word BRAVEMAKER to 44321. Pull out your phone, literally type in 44321 into a text and type in the subject BRAVEMAKER, boop, and you'll get a link yeah. to give and help us reach. I'd love to go above and beyond because when we go above and beyond, we can get some computers. We're trying to raise more money so that we can not only do our film fest and our monthly screenings, but so we can hire some staff. Thankfully with this money that we raised, 
we just hired a grant writer, Ooh. which is cool. So one day a week, we have someone working for us eight hours a week to search out and write grants for us. So if you know any grants, pass them along. And if you work for any Bay Area companies and you want to be a corporate sponsor or you want to give through your matching campaigns, yes. we are, we're in Benevity, which if you look in your matching programs in like Oracle and Apple and Google, they have these campaigns that they will also double through their programs, which is super cool. Yeah. And we're also supporting, have you mentioned the writers group? Before? No, no. Um. Yeah, we're also supporting a group of um, independent writers uh-huh. and we'd love to get their projects out, Brave Films, and so the money can go towards that as well. Yeah, I, there's eight different writers who are meeting with um, us in this room, this very room, and working on their projects, teaching them how to pitch their projects, how to create log lines, how to do character development and structure their actions, and their dialogue. It's really fun. And there's still a, a spot or two open. So if you are an aspiring writer or an already screenwriter who's doing some, some pl- uh, screenplays and you want some help and uh, community, just email or message us, and we would love to get a hold of you and bring you in. Okay, so let's do our intro for episode 40. This is episode 40 of the Brave Maker podcast, which will be one of the last ones of 2019. Wow. And it's with our correspondent, Irving Ruan. Can you introduce our, our guest that he has on the, on the podcast? Caitlin Kunkel, who is a <laughs> humorous satirical writer? So, yeah, how do you say that? Satirist? Satirist? She's into satirical, yeah, satirical, satirical. writing. <laughs> yep, that's it. This that had one. to be live, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and... Um, She's also a self-proclaimed... Wait, 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 wait. Can you remember? Self-proclaimed pizza scientist. Pizza scientist. Hard I guess to forget that one. I guess when you're in New York, you have to be all about pizza, which we bless that. That's a good thing, Caitlin. And I asked Tony, so what are you self-proclaimed to Yeah, be? I said I'm a holy... <laughs> I'm a, <laughs> not a holy... I'm a cannoli enthusiast. That would be my self-proclamation. And I am a green tea aficionado. Yeah, which is good. I can um, recommend her drink is a almond matcha latte. Yeah. I have tried it a few times. It's delicious. It's good. So enjoy our... Uh, our Irving's conversation. <laughs> Thank you to Irving, who's a super great friend to Brave Maker. Uh, he is doing these correspondence, and he's bringing in writers, which is really cool. And he brought a cartoonist um, on the last episode that he did. So um, all of the show, all of the links to their socials and websites will be in the show notes. So make sure you click on them, follow them, shout them out on your social media, and thank them for being on the Brave Maker podcast. And we wish you all. Happy holidays. Anything yeah. else? No, just if you missed Irving's podcast, because he actually did one by himself as well with Tony. Um, oh, yeah, Just to, right. learn, to learn about him. Yeah. For some, sometimes you jump forward in podcasts. That's so, right. Um, check that out, because he's a really interesting guy. And yeah, we're really super thankful to have him corresponding for us. Yeah, if you got extra time, December 2019, binge. All right. Take care. Bye. Attention filmmakers. Brave Maker screens films every month and we host an annual film festival. Submit your short films and features, narrative and documentaries on filmfreeway.com slash bravemakerfilmfest to be considered. Brave stories, brave makers and brave conversations. Join us for our next monthly film screening and panel discussion. Tickets are available at bravemaker.com. Brave stories change the world. 
You are the story. Now back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Brave Maker podcast. My name is Irving Ron, and I am here with a very dear friend and a really amazing human being, Caitlin Kunkel. Caitlin Kunkel is a writer and satirist. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, the New Yorker, McSweeney's, among others. And she's a co-founder of the Satire and Humor Festival, as well as a Belladonna comedy. Along with the other Belladonna editors, in 2018, she published the gift book, New Erotica for Feminists, Satirical Fantasies of Love, Lust, and Equal Pay. She created the online satire program for the Second City and teaches and gives talks around the world. Caitlin, welcome. Thank you so much for that beautiful intro. Of course. I mean, I feel like you've done so much and I felt like I could have gone on way more because I know you've done way more. Um, but I'm so glad to have you here. How are you doing today? I am good. I'm just sitting here with my very good little dog and enjoying the end of the day here in New York. That's wonderful to hear. Now, I think for people who are probably tuning in and may not either know me or yourself, uh, probably be helpful to give a little context. So we met, I think, was it maybe a few years ago, two or three years ago, when I think you were teaching for an online writing class and I signed up, correct? Yeah, it was either in 2015 or 2016. We literally just met in an online teaching environment. I was your teacher. You were a writer. I didn't know where you were based. I didn't know anything about you. And just from like the things you were writing about and how you interacted with people online, I was like, oh, I like this guy. We should be friends. Um, and then you became obviously an excellent writer in your own right. Um, and our paths have crossed a lot more since then. But we met in a totally random environment online. Yeah. And it's, it's super crazy. I think people, I think, tend to underestimate like what kind of relationships and friendships you can develop online because the internet's a super weird place. But I think, you know, you're one of the few people that, you know, we obviously kept in touch, but like we also met in real life, which is great. Like when I was in New York and I think it's just so cool how we got to know each other, not only through a writing class, but like literally through the internet, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. And like even reading your pieces now and like you collaborate with a lot of other people I really like as writers. And it feels like even though we live on opposite sides of the country that I almost feel like I'm in dialogue with like a lot of the work you do all the time. So I feel like I know what you're up to and what you're reading. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely a surreal experience, I think, for for a lot of writers. Um, but now, you know, I want to obviously talk about your work and everything you've been doing with the Satire and Humor Festival, the book you published last year, which obviously did really well and got super popular. But you know, I thought it'd be helpful, you know, to get to know kind of your upbringing a little bit in terms of not only just as a writer, but like as a person, you know, growing up in the States and obviously you traveled internationally, which we'll, we'll get to a little bit later. But help me understand uh, what was it like, I guess, growing up in your household? Like, did you have any particular literary influences? What was it, you know, like being with your siblings? Uh, anything to help kind of paint the picture of your upbringing? Yeah, so I grew up in Rhode Island, which is the smallest state. Uh, it's not Long Island, which people often think I'm saying. But I grew up in Rhode Island. I have two younger sisters. My parents are still married. Um, I went to Catholic school until I went to college, so very small Catholic schools. And when I think about growing up, like I, <laughs> I don't want to say trapped, but I always remember thinking Rhode Island felt very small to me. My school felt very small to me. Um, and it wasn't until I started doing um, kind of hardcore competitive swimming when I turned about 11 that I felt like, okay, here's like a thing that feels expansive to me. Like I, I, I felt a lot of my childhood feeling kind of hemmed in. Um, 
and I wasn't allowed to watch TV other than Nickelodeon, the Disney channel. <laughs> so I like didn't have most of the cultural references that a lot of people my age had. And I could also read whatever I wanted. That was like the one caveat on my media intake. <laughs> so like very young, I was reading Stephen King. I was reading like hardcore books for people like probably much older than I was. Um, I remember reading it when I was like maybe 10 years old and like having to ask like what the gangbang scene at the end was <laughs> and just like getting my information like that. Like my parents would answer me. Like they were like, you can read whatever. Um, but that just seemed like a better way of doing things than me watching it on TV, I guess. <laughs> um, so I became like a very voracious reader. I was a huge Stephen King fan. Um, I was really into biographies for years. I remember that. Like I would read two or three biographies from the library every week. Like I loved Jackie Joyner Kersey. I remember that. <laughs> um, I remember one week I read like a Hitler biography and a Walt Disney biography. Like there was a lot of like mixing of genres and influences. There was no like, like I'm an autodidact or anything like where it's like, now I'm learning philosophy. It was like, all right, this week we're reading Stephen King, a Hitler biography and a Jackie Joyner Kersey biography. Let's do it. Wow. That is uh, definitely quite the range for, for one week. I have to say, I think for listeners who may not be privy, I think, to the context of Stephen King, uh, as a personal note, I remember, I think it was like a few weeks ago where I think they announced Stephen King's house was open for like visits or what a like writing residency, right? Yeah. Um, and I remember you had tweeted like over 40 people, whatever tweeted you like, this is your thing. And so I think that goes to <laughs> underscore your, your, your love for Stephen King. Um, that's so great to hear. So it sounds like you grew up in a very literary kind of context, like books were a huge influence. So you, I mean, from the get go, like you had a love for words, you had a stuff for a love for books. Do you think as a child, like whether as an adolescent or a teenager that gave you kind of the first germ of like, oh, maybe I want to be a writer? Or did that come much later in, in your adulthood? I think I always kind of thought, oh, maybe I could be a writer, but I had literally, literally no idea of like genre, literary fiction, nonfiction, journalist, comedy. Like it seemed to me like there were so many different kinds of writing and like, I couldn't imagine how you ever chose one. Um, so I think one thing that ended up being positive for me is that I always kind of kept all my options open. Um, I had, I don't know where I got this from, maybe my parents, maybe school, but there was always an element of like, you don't have to be good at stuff right now. <laughs> um, which I think has served me well, like throughout my career. Like I don't panic when I'm bad at something. It's just like, all right, well, we just have to initiate a learning sequence on this. Like you don't have to like be naturally talented in order to do something. Um, so I spent a lot of my time growing up just like dabbling in things. Um, I was not great at math. That's not just a stereotype, but, um, I, you know, I loved reading like classic books. Like I was really interested when I read HMS Bounty and like the, um, just the description of the botany and stuff on the islands. So like, then I would read books about that. Um, so I just kind of like let my interests and take me wherever I wanted to go. Like there wasn't a sense of like, you have to pick something and like decide what you're going to be at age 13, which I appreciate. Cause I think sometimes uh, people get kind of hemmed in early on. Right. Yeah, totally. And I think for people listening, I think that's, I feel right now a pretty huge weight, I think, on our culture, which is like this need to succeed or like I think the cult of productivity or whatever that, mm. you know, means. And I think there's I think the whole idea of just doing something for the love of something without sort of this pressure to succeed. I think that's been really lost. I mean, I grew up with aspects so I could totally relate. But I feel right now kids are growing up with like you you have to do this for X, Y and Z. And it sounds like you had that creative and emotional freedom growing up where you're like, you didn't really have that pressure, but it, you followed your curiosity. 
Exactly. And that makes me sad now to see kids who are like so tightly scheduled. Like my parents both read a lot of books. Like my father really loved like Westerns and war movies. And he would watch those with us as three daughters at night. My mom was at uh, work. She worked third shift a lot. Um, and we would just sit there and like watch these John Wayne movies like repeatedly. I've probably seen the searchers 40 times. <laughs> um, but then after school, we would go stay at um, my mom's friends as like she would watch us until my dad got done with work. And like for two or three hours a day, like there was no structure at all. It was like I just had to stay somewhere near her house. Um, but I would usually end up reading or like I would like walk all around. And it just felt nice to have this time where I could do whatever I wanted. Like I do have this memory of like my main frustration in childhood was feeling like I couldn't be self-determined. Like I had to be certain place at certain times. I had a schedule and like, I always remembered wanting to be an adult to have my own schedule, which sounds so lame, <laughs> but I would say like a lot of my life choices have led to me making my own schedule, which is probably the thing I prize most in my daily life now. <laughs> yeah. That that's so cool to hear. And now with your siblings, um, did they, were they also really into like books and all that, uh, like you were, or do you feel like you were kind of the odd one out that kind of carved out your own sort of, you know, artistic interests in that field? My sisters are both, uh, one of them is really artistic. My middle sister is an actress, a very, very strong, great actress. Um, so she was always acting and reading texts and she won the state Shakespeare competition when she was in high school. Um, and then my youngest sister was, she now works more like in sales, technical stuff. Um, but she was a great golfer and runner. And so we all had these outlets of, I was a swimmer. Um, we all had these different outlets where we could kind of like express ourselves and like try to gain mastery in some way, but there wasn't pressure. Like my sister was one of the best golfers in new England. And when she said she didn't want to golf in college, my parents were like, yeah, okay. <laughs> wow. That's, uh, that, that, those are the parents <laughs> I wish I had, you know, like if I told my parents I was going to stop doing something, they would just interrogate me to no end. So something that um, you were really a, good at too. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's so, that's so interesting. I feel like, so with siblings, you know, uh, the stories I tend to hear often are established in rivalries, but I think it's always great to hear like siblings who compliment each other and you guys kind of par like, carved out your own paths. So that's really cool to hear. And when you decided, you know, when you went off to college and everything, did you know at that time that maybe, you know, you're going to give writing a shot or was it sort of like, I'm going to try it, but still keep my options open to what you were mentioning earlier? Yeah, I think, so I ended up going to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, which is a school that mainly produces doctors and scientists and stuff, but they have a program called writing seminars, which is what I ended up majoring in. And one of the reasons I went there is because it was by far the best school I got into. And my mom said something like very like prescient about my personality. I remember I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I had applied to like this crazy swath of schools with like nothing in common. And she was like, the main thing you like most is just to be challenged all the time and to kind of start near the bottom of a pack and then try to rise to the top. She's like, so you should just go to the school where the other people are going to be way smarter than you. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then I got to college and I was like, I am dumb. These people are very smart. <laughs> so my first year was like literally just like keeping my head afloat. I was also swimming in college, even though it was division three, um, like learning how to balance that and take so many classes. And I had been decent at taking tests in high school, but like a lot of it was memorization. So like learning how to learn in a way that wasn't memorization. Um, so definitely the first year was just like, oh, damn, like there's real smart people here. Like I need to get my act together. Um, and then in subsequent years, I could enjoy my major more, which was um, based on the idea that like writing is important, but 
writing is nothing unless you have things that are informing your writing. So we would take journalism classes, but we also took science and philosophy and ethics um, and business and math. And like the idea being that without those things underpinning whatever you're going to write about, you won't have the context to understand anything. Yeah, I think that's a really healthy perspective uh, to to really get, I think, as a writer. I think oftentimes what I see right now is, you know, from my very naive standpoint, you know, there's like journalists, right? There's like fiction writers, like nonfiction writers. And I just feel my sense of like how publishing is right now. People are very specialized. They go into specific yeah. fields, which is, I think, great. But I think it sounds like your experience, especially in college, was like cultivating, okay, how can I pull from multidisciplinary sort of influences, because even if I may not use it, it was like just a healthy perspective to adopt. Was that something that was really stressed upon in Johns Hopkins, you know, sort of writing curriculum? Or was that something that I guess you intentionally went out and be like, okay, I really got to work hard at this because this is important sort of thing. I think both, like there was definitely like, I remember one of my teachers telling me this and at the time I was like, Oh, rude. But now it makes sense. Like in our first year, he was like, I don't want to read a story about any of you, any of you going to frat parties. I don't care. That's not interesting. And I was like, Oh my God, excuse me. That's my lived experience. But now, now I look back and I'm like, yes. Like what he was saying is that like, if you only have a limited range of experience, that's not necessarily the thing that will propel you to write interesting work. Um, so I definitely kind of took that to heart and wanted to have different experiences. And, um, I think that college, what that program in that college specifically helped me be okay with like not being good at things, which like I said, has helped me a lot in my career. Cause like, I mean, I would take classes and get C's like I, you could take one class pass fail every semester. And I always tried to take one that was like maybe a little too hard for me <laughs> where then I could like pass fail it at the last second. Um, and that became really important to me to be like, all right, well this, this class on Italian autobiography seems really hard <laughs> uh, and I'm not sure I can do it, but I should at least try. Like I'm spending so much money to be here. Like I should try something that's harder than what I think I can do. Yeah. Well, I th I never knew that you, uh, one had such a high tolerance for, I guess, discomfort in that way. Cause I think that's so <laughs> cool to do that. I, I really mean that. I think, you know, I mean, goes back to what we were saying earlier, but you know, I think at the slightest, uh, sort of site of failure or just discomfort for a lot of kids nowadays, it's just, okay, maybe we shouldn't try it, but like, it's so cool that you develop such a resilience to all of that. And I think, you know, certainly from one writer to another, I think resilience in writing or in any creative endeavor is super important. So it sounds like you sort of really developed that from a, from a very young age and it continued to, to progress into adulthood. How do you think uh, as you graduate from college and everything, did you sort of get that dosage immediately? Or, I mean, was this sort of like this, oh, I started getting more comfortable with it? Or did you always intentionally say, I need to get myself into uncomfortable situations, like even post-college? Well, I will say, I think some of it came from the fact that not only was I was a swimmer, I was a long distance freestyler. So like literally every day, twice a day, I was training to the point of being incredibly uncomfortable. So, but I do think it's not a coincidence that that's the kind of swimming I fell into. I think something about that was appealing to me. Like I remember my favorite event was the 400 meter freestyle because it's not a sprint, but it's also not a race where you can take any moment off from it. And I loved that it was like such a tightrope of a race. Like if you went out too fast, you failed. If you went out too slow, you couldn't catch up. Um, so it just felt like you really had to like monitor it and like get data on it and do it right in order to have a good race. Um, so in terms of your question about like, did I get uncomfortable after college? Yes. The year after college, I went on a Fulbright English teaching assistantship to Indonesia and I taught 
uh, English in a Muslim public high school for a year. And I had 10 classes of 45 students a week. So it's 450 students a week. And uh, I mean, I was 22 and they were 16. I was not prepared to be doing that. I got a six-week orientation on how to speak Indonesian and how to teach. And I just flew off to the city and started. Uh, so that was definitely like learning on the job every single day failing, like not knowing enough Indonesian to get around, like not necessarily knowing enough of how to teach. <laughs> um, so I definitely went from like into the fire at that point. It was like, oh, you thought college was hard? What about managing these 450 kids every single week and you're in charge of them speaking English? <laughs> yeah, I, I I mean, even just thinking about that for me right now, I'm feeling very uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> so I, I can't imagine what was it like to actually live for that experience. And obviously, I mean, for you going from a person who uh, grew up going to Catholic school and everything. I mean, even going into such a different context like that mm-hmm. must, must have been really eye-opening. If you uh, remember upon that moment, what were some of like the biggest, I guess, what were some of the biggest assumptions you may have had going into that experience? And like, how, were they, were they confirmed or were they, were you surprised by it? Like help walk us through kind of the, I guess the eye-opening experience of something like that. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I will say, I don't think I went into it with a ton of expectations. I think it's built. So there's Fulbright scholars who like speak the language and do projects. And then we're kind of like their little cousin where they're like, Hey guys, like just show up, have fun, like going to be rough, but like, don't quit. Um, so I was like, all right, that's, that's a good, something I can do. Um, I think something I was surprised about was like how performative teaching is. And even now I still teach a lot and when you're teaching, not only are you trying to convey information, but you're trying to create energy and enthusiasm for the material. So there was such a high element of performance. Like up until that point, I would have told you I did not perform, that I was scared of public speaking. And now all of a sudden I'm doing public speaking constantly all the time, sometimes in a language I don't really speak that well. Um, but I feel like there was no, I had no choice. Like I had these kids, so they were only six years younger than me, um, who wanted something from me. They kind of wanted the experience of like learning English from an American woman. And I felt like every day there was high pressure to like deliver upon their vision of me, (laughs) however that might be. Um, like I remember they were like, Americans are loud. And I was like, well, I mean, I guess that's true. So like I would walk down the hallways and like give high fives and like shout affirmations at people. And they were like, you're just what we wanted. (laughs) Um, so I don't know if I was initially going to be like that, or like, I just like did a feedback loop on what they seem to want. Um, but it got to the point where I was like, okay, when I'm in school, I'm performing almost like the teacher that they want. That character is who I am performing for them. Yeah. I mean, it just makes me, you know, realize that obviously you've in the past few years, obviously you've, you know, been teaching very actively. You, you know, uh, spoken in front of public audiences. Uh, you've produced many things. You obviously come also from a theater background. Uh, you've done so much that I think it sounds like this particular experience in Indonesia, um, I would suspect maybe a plan is sort of like this seed, I guess, in your mind about, Oh, actually I'm not like, sort of the quiet, shy person I thought it was, was that sort of a very, I guess, earth shattering realization for you after it's like, Oh, I actually may be a person that I originally did not think I was. Wow. That's super well put. Uh, I've never thought about it like that, but I think you're actually completely right. (laughs) I think it just like being forced to do something so outside your comfort zone every day and like seeing immediate feedback. Like if you're explaining something to people, like in sometimes their third or fourth language and they're staring at you blankly, you're not doing it right. And you very quickly have to like pivot and find a new way to do it. Um, so I think that's why when I teach now, like I'm like thinking like orally, 
you know, how people are hearing me, how they're seeing me, like writing things down, kinetic learners, like getting people up and feeling stuff. Um, and I definitely think all that came from that experience because it just was so clear when things weren't working <laughs> and they weren't working a lot. Let me be clear. <laughs> um, that, yeah, like I came out of that and I was like, well, if I can do that, certainly no teaching I'll ever do will be as hard as that. And I was right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's so fascinating because I've one, I've never taught anybody, uh, in a, in a foreign setting, uh, let alone teach anybody anything. So the fact that I think you've done a lot of that goes to show obviously one, not only I think you're teaching, uh, skills, but just your ability, I think, to connect with human beings. And I, I feel like you know, one thing that uh, was really cool to see, I remember a few months ago, you went to Jordan, I believe, mm-hmm. right? Yep. To, to teach satire and, and comedy, which is, one, just a freaking amazing thing to do. Yeah. But two, again, being in a very foreign country where English is probably not their first language and you're teaching something, obviously, you know very well, but something they may not have firsthand experience with. And so I'd be curious to hear, like, from your experience, you know, teaching in Indonesia, even though that's not particularly comedy or, or writing for satire, but also in, in Jordan, were, are there any similarities you sort of got from, I guess, across different cultures and how people take in information, or did you have to adjust your style? Um, I'd be curious to hear from your perspective. Yeah, let me just say I was so grateful I had that experience in Indonesia when I got to Jordan because it was so I went out into Indonesia when I was 22 and I was 35 when I went to Jordan. So I had 13 years of experience and it was still super challenging. Like I was working with adults, um, 32 adults, and I would do three hours of satire with one group and then they would go to the other woman I was with from Second City to do stand up and then we'd switch. So it was six hours a day, but three hours of new material. And That, I think what I really took from the experience in Indonesia there was like, these are adults, like they're working, they have families, like, how am I going to keep them enthused about the material and keep their energy up and kind of impress upon them what their skills are and how they can use those. Um, so I was teaching them late night satire. So like by day four, I'm like splitting these 32 people up that I met four days ago (laughs) and I'm assigning them roles and like seeing what they're good at and like making some of them writers, making some of them producers, making some of them performers. Um, and I felt like really proud in that moment because also most of them were speaking Arabic and I was hearing English in my ear and vice versa that like they felt, most of them felt like very happy about the roles they had been assigned. And I was like, that's a sign that like we're connecting on a level where I'm kind of seeing where your interests are and seeing where you feel most comfortable. Like a lot of times I would take my translator out when we were doing stuff and just like watch their body language and be like, oh, they hate this. Or like, oh, this woman I thought was shy actually is enjoying this like process of improvising a scene so much. Like she wants to be a performer, but she doesn't want to say it. Um, and so I think like I was more attuned to like, it's not just what people are saying to you. In some ways it's like more important to see like when they look away, what they're not interested by, like when they're staring at you super intently with their translator against their ear, that means like they want the information that you're giving them. Um, and it was really exciting. I went for a second city and in five days we like produced two 30 minute late night sets, 32 stand up sets. Uh, they're, t- they taped a pilot of one of the shows and they're hopefully going to move forward with that. They're opening up a comedy club called Amon comedy club. Um, and it was truly one of the best experiences of my entire working life, but I don't know that I could have executed it had I not done the experience in Indonesia. Wow. And one, I never heard about a lot of these details. So that's just so cool to see (laughs) that, you know, even, I mean, even just trying to imagine the idea of getting translation and then getting that translation back to them. I mean, definitely you have a 
I would imagine some sense of lossy signal, but also like to do that in a teaching environment and, and to still read people's body expression. I mean, a lot of, I think, processing that I think a teacher oh has to God. do. So I can imagine that must have been <laughs> a lot of like, just, oh gosh, it just stresses me out. Even just thinking it about what It was so a much to do. processing. And like, if we taught, I also had a little bit of jet lag. So I was waking up at 6am, we'd meet at 10 we'd have an hour long lunch break where again, like I loved everyone. It was great to meet them, but like, we're all speaking either. I was speaking English. I was not speaking Arabic. So most of them are speaking in their second languages, um, or third. And then like at the end of the day, I'm prepping the stuff for the next day based off what we did and did not get to. Um, we had a four hour graduation show at the end one night and I, I am like not, I'm a kind of a nervous flyer and I never sleep on airplanes, but I remember I got on the airplane to leave and I fell asleep on the runway and woke up like two hours later in the air. And I was like, damn, I gave everything I could possibly give. (laughs) I like, can't even be nervous anymore. Like I truly have like exhausted my mind and body on this project. And that felt really good. Like how often in adult life are you like every ounce of what I could give was given. It couldn't have been any better from my point of view. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's very true. I think that's a great observation. The only example I can think of, I feel is like spending time with family over the holidays, but you give a (laughs) different, I think you give a different side of yourself. So Mm -hmm. not, I think in the positive way that you're talking about. Um, (laughs) I, I love how you mentioned when you, you know, you created, uh, obviously such a great program at second city, but also you, you took that to Jordan and that these people obviously loved it. They learned a lot. They're like producing their own show. I mean, it's clear you're making a really great positive impact on communities. And I know, you know, you've talked about this, uh, off and on, but building community is very important to you. And for mm-hmm. people who are tuning in in the beginning, obviously you've created the satire and humor festival, which is uh, so amazing. I was there, uh, early this year. So definitely I'm biased in that way, but it is a wonderful <laughs> festival. Um, you created the Belladonna comedy publication, um, which by itself has become so big and there's so many funny things on it. You also wrote a book, which I could argue created a giant community of readers who love it. So building community is a really strong theme uh, in your life and and career right now. Uh, Why do you think that came to be as such a really important thing to you? I mean, was it something that you grew up with as a kid or any particular influences that I guess really inspired you to, to create such amazing communities? You know, that's such an interesting question because like, if I think about how I was as a child, I would describe myself as a loner for sure. Like always watching other people. I had very few friends. Um, even through high school, I had very few friends at my school. I had a lot more friends that I swam with. Um, I always have felt like kind of on the outside looking in, like I love to observe people, but I have a hard time sometimes like losing myself in interactions, like not feeling nervous (laughs) or feeling like I'm watching myself or like maybe I said something dumb. Um, So I think one of the reasons I started the online classes is because I was living in Portland, Oregon at the time, which is unfortunately the only place I ever lived where I just had a really hard time making any friends at all. (laughs) And so I felt super isolated and I was like, well, I like this one kind of writing on the internet. There must be other people who like it. At that point I had taught, I had an MFA, I taught at Northwestern, I had written curriculums before and I had worked a little for Second City and I was like, I want to write this curriculum online to teach people to write in a format that makes sense to learn online because it's going to be read online and eventually anyway. And I think as I started to like see that other people like the same stuff as me, like all of a sudden, like the scales fell from my eyes and I was like, oh, you're not the only person (laughs) who likes this very specific thing. You're not the only person who has a hard time like learning stuff. Um, Like I I found a lot of connection with students over like when they get frustrated. I think in some ways it's why I'm a good teacher because a lot of things are not intuitive to me at all. 
And I really have to think about them and try to understand them. And so when students are frustrated, I'm like, yeah, I feel you. Like I went through that same thing. Like, let's talk about little things you could do. The only thing I ask is that you don't quit. It's only a four week class, just stick in it for four weeks. Um, but yeah, then as I started to like see all these students graduate, they would ask me for more. And I started to think like, what is the next step? Like there's so many of us now, like the program has graduated well over a thousand people. So, which is a ton of people, (laughs) um, that's when I started to think, like I worked with the three other editors of the Belladonna to create the site. And then I was like, well, there's all these other sites. What if we put an umbrella over the site? So we made a festival. <laughs> it just seems like every step of the way, like I meet new people and I'm like, well, we all like the same thing, but there's nothing connecting us all. Like, let me make that thing that connects us all so we can all have fun. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, what a wonderful thing. I mean, just as a personal anecdote, I remember when I attended the Satire and Humor Festival earlier this year in New York in March. Uh, I just remember it felt so, like, I felt so at peace. I don't know if that's the right word, but like just being with people who just kind of get you and you get them, I think is, uh, obviously really rare. And I think even rarer, uh, in sort of like this large scale setting that you, you know, you guys have done you, James and, and, and Tulio. Right. And I think to that extent, right. It really goes to show like how valuable I think these communities are where again, like you obviously started in an online setting where maybe you felt like, Oh, does anyone else sort of like this? And then it really grew into such a, this beautiful garden. I feel that's turning into a forest and who knows, it would just take over the world. So we'll see at that point. Um, (laughs) and one other small anecdote. So I think for listeners out there who may consider writing comedy or satire or anything like that, I highly recommend uh, the class and program Caitlin's put together on Second City. We're thinking about taking it. I personally took it, and that's how we obviously met. But um, it was one of the probably single best classes I ever took. And I know it's hard <gasps> to to teach online. So even to that extent, there is that barrier already to, to make, I think, a class fun. But honestly, I, I don't remember having that much fun in a class probably since, I don't know, ninth grade calculus or something. I mean, it's been, it's been a long time. And I think that class opened my eyes to, there are other people out there who write like weird stuff and it's totally okay to be weird. And I think that was such a great realization for me at least. So thank you, uh, for putting that class together and helping, I guess, thousands of people really, I guess, be themselves. Thank you. That's so nice of you. And I, I feel like it's like very intimate to ask someone to share their work with you online, but just by the things people pick and like the point of view. So in satire, you always have a point of view and that's like what you're saying to the reader about your topic, what your critique is. Just when someone tells you their point of view on like a certain topic where they're like, you know, it's important to me, you know, domestic violence is something I have a strong point of view on. Like, here's why here's my piece. It's like, you've just told me so much about yourself. Like you've trusted me with such an important thing to you. And now I have to help you shape it in a way that's funny. (laughs) Um, so it just like, I always felt like when I meet my students in real life, like when you and I met, we like went out to lunch and we had such a good time. We like walked back to my apartment. You met my husband, you met my dog. And my husband was like, I cannot believe you two just met today. And I was like, we've talked for years (laughs) and it doesn't feel like when you're meeting people in person, it, it feels like you've been known to each other for such a long time. And like, it is interesting how the internet can make us feel like very isolated in some ways, but like, I like to try to use it to like make people feel seen by each other. Yeah. And I definitely felt very seen. I feel, I think the, that particular class that I was in, I think you were very, you found it really important to make sure that when writers were giving each other feedback, they kept a few things in mind. I think that's really easy to lose focus when giving feedback. And I think in any 
I've speculated in a lot of, I think, creative fields where there's collaboration or you're getting feedback on things. Um, one, I think it's hard to even ask for feedback because it's very self-conscious, like you mm-hmm. make it hurt. We're all sensitive people. But two, it's also very hard to give feedback. And I felt what I learned in your class was, you know, the very, you know, important principles of giving feedback. And I'd be curious to hear, like, if you could share with our listeners, um, what have you found helpful in terms of not just giving like any writing feedback, but just creative feedback in general, what you've found have worked well with people. I'd love to kind of hear your wisdom on, on that subject. Yeah, I think giving feedback is really an underrated skill. I mean, I took some writing classes in college where I was like, I cannot believe the teacher is allowing this kind of feedback to exist. I take classes now in New York where it's just kind of shocking what's allowed to happen. Um, and so I think it's really important to try to understand like what the intent of the writer, like whoever asked for feedback is like, you know, I might be your boss and you ask me for feedback and it's like, well, what do you want feedback on? Like, can I get your intent Is it to improve like a certain area of performance? Is it to, you know, interact better with clients? Like, I think that's really key. So you're not just trying to like sculpt someone in your image or just like shit on them for lack of a better phrase. Um, I also think it's important to remember that like we all get flooded when we're being critiqued, even if it's being done nicely. So I try to never give more than like three areas of focus, because if you give someone 17 points of feedback, you're like, oh, great, we'll fix this whole piece. Here are 17 notes. For most people, they're like, oh, it's garbage. I have to throw it away. Mm-hmm. Um, if I give you 17 points of critique on your the way you interact with people, you would feel terrible. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think it's like a way to be like, all right, three things that were good, three things that you can work on. Um, and also I try to always give examples. So instead of saying like, oh, you need to like heighten more in this piece. Like I'll say you need to heighten more in this piece. Like here's an example, not this, but like something like this, because so often in in classes, I, I, because I'm not again, like an intuitive writer, I would be befuddled by notes. It would be like, all right, you just need to like shape the ending better. I'm like, what does that mean? (laughs) So I try, I think it's really important to model exactly the kind of thing you're talking about because then they can take the note or not, but they're not like wondering about the intent or what you mean by it. Totally. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. That's all really super helpful. I think I definitely find myself certainly guilty of the kind of person who say, oh yeah, I don't know, maybe make this voice a little clearer. Like, yeah, what does that even mean? Right. And I think, And I think it's so, because a lot of times, right, I think you hit such a really great point, which is for a lot of people who may be really good at what they do, like whether it's like a filmmaker or a painter or a musician, oftentimes what makes them so good and intuitive what they do is the very thing that I would think uh, makes them, I guess, struggle to articulate why that is, right? Like just because they're really great at what you do doesn't necessarily translate to like being really great in articulating the reflective aspects of it. And I think with feedback, I don't think that's really exempt from that process. So, uh, that's all really good. Uh, really great advice. I was also wondering, you know, as you've, you know, obviously given feedback on online writing, do you find that these rules sort of carry across in other formats, like whether it's a TV pilot or maybe a nonfiction essay, or do you feel like these are more or less specific to writing satire? Um, well, I've taught in my life, I've taught mostly writing English language stuff, um, some performance, but I think like always going back to intent is good and forcing yourself to be concrete in what you're saying. Like, it's really easy for someone to give a note, like this doesn't feel right. (laughs) Um, and that like, yeah, the writer probably knows that they probably try to like sneak that in there. Um, 
so yeah, just like returning to that point of like, if I'm going to like ask someone to consider my note carefully, like I need to take the time to actually deliver it in a way that is meaningful. And like, I've put some thought into it. Like, I think there's nothing worse than like feeling like someone just dismissed your piece by giving vague notes. Um, whereas like I have a friend, um, Eric, who I went to graduate school with, who I only ask for notes very, very infrequently, but when he gives me notes, I'm like, he considered my work, like I'm a Pulitzer prize winner. Like to feel like a great writer considered your work on a very high level to me is like the biggest compliment you can get. Um, and so if I don't have time to give someone like thoughtful, meaningful feedback, I'll just say, I can't do it. Even if it makes them mad. Um, because that's to me, there's nothing worse than like being like, Oh, they, they totally missed my intent. Um, and your intent might be unclear, but a close read will reveal that to someone. And they'll say like, Oh, I wasn't actually sure what you were saying here. Was it blank, blank, blank. And you're like, Oh, it's number three. Great. That needs to be clearer. But if someone just is like, I don't know. It seems like this is a piece about getting groceries and you're like, it's a piece about my marriage. <laughs> um, then, uh, yeah, that doesn't feel so great. So, <laughs> yeah, I definitely can, can see something like that happening. <laughs> I'd love to, uh, change gears a little bit to on the writing side, as opposed to teaching and, and giving feedback and editing. Um, obviously you've written, you know, a book, you've written for online, you've written for radio, you've written for the stage, you've written for the screen. Um, one, is there any format you haven't written for yet? <laughs> but two, the, the question I'm trying to understand, I guess, is, um, what sort of lessons do you, have you taken away, I guess, from writing for all these different formats and do you apply these across different ones or do you feel like they're so isolated and compartmentalized that it's kind of hard to take, I guess, different strategies or things you've learned from other, other, uh, areas? Well, I'll say I've very rarely written any sort of straight fiction. Uh, I'm trying to write some now, but even that's like kind of comedic. Uh, the few times I wrote straight fiction in college, I was like, oh, this doesn't feel right. And the teacher would say, like, I don't understand your tone. It's a serious topic, but it's kind of funny. Um, so I think even then I, I was struggling to try to like articulate what ultimately turned out to be satire. <laughs> I just didn't know what that was. I literally didn't learn what that was till I was 25 years old. And I went to second city and I was like, okay, here we go. Um, I think the main things I've learned across all those forms is like specific is always better than vague. So like never say car, like always name the car and like say like a beaten up Subaru Outback that only has 20,000 miles on it. Like that's such a better visual than car. Um, so the main thing I would say, like I went from writing fic like fiction, nonfiction into writing screenplays and sketches and stuff, and you just have less words. So I think doing that transition like showed me how lazy I'd been when I just had like unlimited words. <laughs> um, Cause when you're writing a five page sketch, like you really cannot be dilly dallying around, like putting a bunch of superfluous words in there. Same with a screenplay. Like you can't write, you know, 10 pages of wall to wall. That's more like a play or a novel. Um, so being specific and also like creating images in the reader's mind, even in a piece of comedy, I think it's really important to like, can they envision kind of this absurd image or scenario? Like, are you being like, are you crafting your work enough that like it's popping into people's heads and they're seeing it as you're working? I think that definitely some of my early writer was like very diffuse. Um, I would like batter on the point and like not be totally sure what I was saying. And now like, I feel like my strength as a writer is like in rewrites. I'm like, all right, that's not clear. Like, let's be clear. Um, so I, I've gotten like a lot more rigorous myself in terms of like actually selecting the correct words and like not using 10 words when I can use two. Yeah. And it sounds like you take a lot of this mindset with you in a lot of these formats. And I would imagine certainly for, you know, uh, screen especially. And also I think for online, you know, people just don't really have the attention spans like they used to anymore. So yeah. sounds like, I mean, it just, I think behooves people to like 
condense and compress, even that may be hard because we all love words, but you know, I think it's a, it sounds like it's a really great exercise to be rigorous with your word economy and just be very specific, which I think, you know, it's hard to, right. Because a lot of times it's just like, how specific can you get? Well, you can get pretty specific, but you know, at a certain point as a writer is like, am I being too specific? You sort of have this whole self-questioning thing. At least I feel like. I think you can only get specific if you actually know what you're saying. And I think a lot of early drafts, you don't actually know, not you specifically, like a lot of readers, uh, and writers. And so like, for me, I find if I'm writing diffuse stuff, I'm like, oh, I actually don't know what I'm talking about yet. And that's fine. I can keep writing. Um, but for me, it's almost like a signal of like, you're not sure what the theme is. You're not sure exactly what this should be. Um, like in screenwriting, they say enter late, leave early. And that I think is great advice for any kind of writing. Like, why are you writing the build up to the scene when we could just drop in like right in the middle of the fight? Um, that took me a long time to learn, like watching a lot of sketches bomb on the student stages at Second City before I was like, great, we don't need that page and a half of wind up. We can just start at the top. Um, again, very slow learner. But I think once you have the experience of like seeing something just not lift off, <laughs> you like kind of get very devoted to just slashing and burning. <laughs> Yeah. And I think that that's one thing that I'm, I'm still learning a lot from is, you know, I feel like I'm the kind of person that will take some time. I think, oh, I, I got to <laughs> set up things. And I remember uh, early on in your class, that was one of the biggest points of feedback. And I, and I guess I, it took me a long time to really learn that because I'm like, I want, I want to set up the scene, you know, I yeah. feel like I was playing house, you know, so um, definitely can empathize with that. Uh, I love to explore more of your writing process. I think, you know, we obviously have a lot of artists listening to this podcast, but one thing that I've, I guess, realized is that there are some writers who don't really outline or plan things. And there are other writers who, you know, need to plan everything, right? And you need to have every section figured out and so forth. Uh, my question for you is like, where do you fall in that spectrum? And I guess at what point in your life did you realize, oh, wait, this is, this is the process that makes sense for me. Yeah. So when I was in college, I was just, I would write whatever I wanted. Like I would not, I would just follow the page count I was given. I would never structure. I don't even think I was, I was taught how to structure anything in college, to be honest. Like maybe when we did like op-eds and journalism, but it was mostly like, just get comfortable with writing. And then I went to graduate school at Northwestern. I got an MFA in writing for the film and stage screen and stage. Um, and I have to say like, they really drilled structure. Like it was wild. Like when I first learned how to outline a screenplay, I was like, Oh my God, it was life-changing for me. Cause it felt like if you started writing, you didn't know where it was going in the first method I tried, like there was no way to fix it. You just had to keep writing forever. <laughs> and the idea of like being able to outline something and like fix issues that way and tinker and then get into the story, um, just felt very revolutionary to me, which sounds crazy. But I mean, even now I still structure out like an 800 word piece. Um, I'm writing a piece with someone right now and we have probably like 900 words of notes to write. Probably it will be a 700 word piece. <laughs> um, I've gotten much better at like trying to like conceptualize and visualize a piece in my head. And that's not to say you might not be surprised later. Like I'm working, like I said, on a piece of fiction, that's the longest thing I've ever worked on. And I'm definitely still like finding things out. Um, but for me, there was a, like a lot of terror and just like starting a pro a, pro uh, a process or a project and being like, who knows, could be a hundred pages, could be two, <laughs> couldn't tell you. <ya. laughs> um, so now it's like, all right, I have this goal. It's going to be this long. Here's like the general premise, this many beats. Um, and I find that very, like, for me, it takes away like so much of the fear that could ca cause writer's block to be like, I'm not writing the piece. I'm just outlining it. <laughs> um, and then when you get going, you kind of have more freedom to be creative in the moment because you're like, great. I don't have to worry about like what the act break is. It's already there. We're good. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, 
I think that's really helpful. And uh, I've never taken a screenplay class or just that kind of class. And I would love to because it sounds like there's so many things to learn from that. I mean, it just mm-hmm. seems one already is such an esoteric sort of feel that to even have something broken down into sort of these really outlined, you know, rigorous sort of places. I mean, I think it would be super helpful. I think one thing that I think would be helpful, I guess, for our listeners is like for people who are, I guess, struggling between, oh, like, I don't know how much I should outline or how much I should figure out or how many notes I should have. Do you think there's a particular, I guess, set of questions writers should ask themselves, like this answer, like, oh, is this project conducive to like these kinds of notes or whatever? Like, have you found like a helpful framework for you and to guide you in terms of how much you want to outline and so forth? I like started doing this probably like six years ago. I almost have like a rubric for all my projects now, like the way, so it was around the time I started teaching and you have to obviously make a grading rubric. And I was like, Oh, if I like make this for my students, like I should have a rubric. So I just like, can't bullshit myself as to like whether or not something is done or like, here are the things I run by, um, kind of run. And I, so I have one that I like run a story by where it's like, or a comedy idea. I'm like, is it unusual? Does it say something I agree with? Um, does it feel smart to me? And is it worthy of my time? Say if I get stuck, like I always think like, oh, I'm going to write this in an hour. But like if I had to spend 20 hours on this because I got stuck, what I still want to at the end. And so that's kind of like my conception rubric. And then I have different ones for like, you know, submission and rewrites. And it's just like a way of holding yourself honest. Like I think a lot of people like really just want to submit and I get it. I also love to submit. Um, But I think you all know when like your last joke is soft or like your title is bad (laughs) uh, or just like not crystallized. And so I have all these rubrics and they're not always all written down either. But like, to me, they're kind of like my internal barometer to just be like, Caitlin, you know, <laughs> you know that that's not good. Like, come on. Um, and so that was super helpful to me when I kind of took the things I was using and teaching and I was like, oh, like make them for yourself, dummy, like use the tools. <laughs> yeah. I Wow. I think that's such a great thing to use. I mean, I, I, I don't have something like that, but I think after this conversation, I'm going to develop something because I feel like one, um, just a lot of, I think, creative type people oftentimes just left to the wind. It was like, oh, we'll just do whatever we feel is right, you know, which yeah. I don't think anything is wrong with that. But I think, you know, implementing sort of these checks and balances for yourself is super important. It reminds me of, I think, forgot the exact example, but I think that uh, every pilot has sort of like a checklist, like a run book, where before they take off, they say like this, this, and this. And even if like yeah. the plane's perfectly fine, like they go through that just because it just ensures like this, you know, level of safety. And it sounds like you've implemented sort of these checks where it's like, okay, even if I like feel great about it, like, am I checking off all the things that I want to hold myself accountable to? So it sounds like it's really working and it's been useful. So hopefully we'll, we'll walk away from this conversation with, at least for me, I'll have some action (laughs) items to do. Yeah. I mean, I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago that I spent, I, I thought it would take two hours. I ended up spending 20 hours on it. And at the end, it kind of failed the piece, the bit where it was like, do I want to like, is this something I believe in? I was like, no, this piece has like kind of moved away from something I believe in. So like, even though I spent all that time on it, I don't want to send it anywhere. Like it just doesn't represent my values. Um, and I was irritated, but at the same time, it's better to know then. And I think sometimes beginning writers were like, a publication's better than anything. Um, but I think like the earlier you can start to like kind of self have like a self level of quality, <laughs> not like always depending on editors to say yes or no. Um, I think it also helps with rejection too. Like if I write a piece and like it checks on my boxes and it gets rejected, it's easier for me to be like, Oh, just not a right fit. As opposed to like, wow, I'm an idiot, <laughs> which I think a lot of people spiral into. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, you're. Yeah, that, I think that's a perfect summary of me. So, uh, <laughs> so I. I am calling I you I, out. <laughs> I think. Um, I think we all have something to learn. I think about just being very. I think thoughtful and honest with our writing in a way that I think is not just writing per se, but like, you know, what that I think reflects about us as, as people and, and human beings. And I think the way you went about it is incredibly thoughtful. And I think it, it's just, I think a testament to one, I think your, your level of wisdom, but I think just your maturity about how important and what writing means to you. It's clear that I think your relationship to writing is very special and, and you treasure it immensely is oh, what I said. Thank you. That's nice. I feel like we're in a we're in a relationship and we're constantly trying to make each other better is how I would describe me and Ray. <laughs> like where sometimes like I work real hard for 20 hours and don't get it, but I definitely think there's ways you can train yourself too, where it's like, that wasn't wasted effort. Like I probably won't make that mistake again. Um, and it helped show me. So I was trying to write like a literary parody map and I was like, you know what? I'm not that good at this. Um, James Fulta, one of the co-founders of the festival is very good at it. And he teaches a class. And I was like, you know what? I should take James's class. Like this is not a skill I currently have. Um, and again, you don't have to spiral when you realize that like no one can have all the skills at once. I mean, I guess if you're a character at the end of a video game, you can, but, um, I think like there's value in being like, Hey, I wonder why that was so hard. Let me do like kind of a postmortem on that. And I, discovered like, okay, like you're not very good at using, doing this speci one specific skill right now. So you can get better at that later. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I know, I uh, want to definitely be respectful of your time. I think the one thing I want to end on in, in this conversation is to talk a little bit about the satire and humor festival, but also understand, you know, you've done so much, you've given so much, I think to the community and obviously you're such a great force in it. Um, what are some things you're looking forward to in the next few years, whether it's satire and humor festival or sort of other communities you're putting together, um, kind of tease us a bit in terms of what you're thinking <laughs> about in, in that respect. Well, I really loved going to Jordan and like working with people internationally. And I have been kind of toying with the idea of like writing like a satire textbook of some sort or something like that. And like, just, I've been trying to expose myself more to international uses of satire. Like I feel like I have a pretty good handle on like the U S version. Um, so it was super interesting to me to read like all these translated Arabic versions of like the onion, like their satirical newspaper is called like Al Hadoud. Um, and I was like, Oh, this is so different. Like it's way harsher, like very interesting, the angles they take. So it kind of felt like going to another country and like stepping into their method of using the tool that I use a lot, um, kind of reinvigorated my love for it in some ways. Like I've been doing it for years and editing and teaching. And I kind of was like, Ugh. um, and then like as, when I had this experience, I was like, Oh my God, you're so dumb. There's so much to learn. <laughs> um, which seems to be a hallmark. Like I, once I achieve mastery of some sort, I'm like, I'm bored. <laughs> and then I just have to remind myself that I don't know anything. Um, so definitely I want to spend more time like studying the satire in other countries and other, um, cultures. I'm really interested in continuing to see the festival grow and, you know, thinking about like which cities to take it to. We took, so we did New York, March, 2019. We just did Chicago in November. We're about to do New York again, probably Chicago again next year. Like what's the next natural city. Um, so I do like and producing, I feel is in some ways a good partner to writing because producing tasks can be done. <laughs> they can just be done and checked off, which is nice. Um, so I'm interested in growing that with James Fulta and Tulio Espinosa, who are great partners, and then, like I said, I'm trying to work on this piece of fiction. It's really hard and I'm very bad at it. Like it's not a skill I have, but it's an idea that I really like. And 
I've been working on it intermittently already for like 10 months. <laughs> um, and I, again, I, this is another theme. I'm like, Oh, this will take like three months. It's not that many words. And now I'm like, this is going to be like three years at least. Um, so I've kind of settled down into like a more realistic schedule, but yeah, like continuing to like step out of like the things I've gotten pretty good at and, and keep <laughs> doing things I'm bad at and then trying to get good at those. Cause otherwise it gets boring, right? <laughs> Oh, totally. I think as, as artists, we have to, I think, challenge ourselves. And the fact that one, I mean, one, I'm just so floored by, uh, you know, the whole prospect of writing, doing comedy, satire in other countries and cultures and other languages. I mean, you really are, I think just, you can do it all. I think that's so amazing. I mean, I didn't even, I didn't even consider that, but of course they have that in all, you know, like, it's just a very, for me, it's like such a singular, like American narcissistic view, like, oh, our comedy is the best. But like, that's so, I think, self-centered. And obviously all these other countries have it and to learn how they approach writing comedy, producing comedy. I mean, what a, what a treat and what a great experience. So that's so cool. Let us know how that all goes. It sounds like um, a lot of learning <laughs> in that direction. For sure. And if I could do a shout out, it would be um, to go to the website for the Satire and Humor Festival. So satireandhumor.com. We have a page called Resources where we list off like sites and pieces we like and writers. And we're making a huge push in the next year to like add more international sites. So we just had a Canadian site and a British site. Um, I'm going to be looking like into the Middle East, French, um, a French site, just trying to find like a big places where people are like getting their comedy from other places. And then I'll have to probably try to write a translator. But I think like, there's something so cool about, like you said, like we are very narcissistic in America. We don't know a lot about other countries, which is if I were to say another area of self-improvement for me, it's like becoming less American centric in my learning, like learning the histories of other countries and like how they interact and I think that's something we're honestly taught in American schools a lot of the time. Like, like I said, I grew up in Rhode Island. I feel like all we did was colonial history for like nine years, um, which is not the only history, especially when you're from Rhode Island. Um, so I'm like really making an effort to kind of expand past like the known knowledge I have and acquire new knowledge. Cause otherwise there's nothing for me to build on. Yeah, totally. And I think that's such a great thing. Again, I mean, not only are you making a dent in the States, but internationally, and I'm so excited to, to see obviously where the festival goes, but to also see um, where you're going with all of this, because I think it's such, again, you're such a positive force, you know, I think in the community. And I'm so glad that one, we met, but I'm so glad that I get to continue watching from the sidelines, all the great stuff that you're, you're bringing to the community. So um, listeners for you out there, we'll definitely have all of this stuff in the show notes linked to the festival and all the things that Kaylin talked about. But um, with that, um, Kaylin, I just want to thank you so much for making the time to talk with me and to share, uh, obviously, such a great life you've had, but also all the things that you feel challenged by and things that you wish to do. And I think this is a great conversation. I learned a ton and I think our listeners are going to really find it enjoyable. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And it's always fantastic to talk to you. And again, we've probably only met in person two or three times, but every time I talk to you, it's like, oh, Irving, my bud, we've known each other forever. So it was actually great to like be able to talk a bit about like my upbringing and stuff with you. So I appreciate it. Of course. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Brave Maker. Uh, we'll be back soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Brave Maker podcast. Subscribe, give us a rating and share with a friend. Brave Maker is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our work is funded by generous patrons like you. Support the podcast with a tax-deductible donation at bravemaker.com.
Brave stories change the world. You are the story.